Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Invasive plants can be hard to get rid of to the detriment of beneficial native plants. Later this hour, we'll talk with the plant ecologist at Syracuse University about the types of invasives that are thriving and what can be done about them. Today, where we live, we'll also explore how diseases and pests are wiping out tree species in the Northeast. From chestnut blight to Dutch elm disease, majestic trees that numbered in the thousands have literally been wiped out. Now a range of invasive beetles are threatening other trees, like ash and pine trees. Is the warmer climate allowing these beetle populations to thrive? We'll find out coming up. And we want to hear from you, too. Have you noticed trees in your neighborhood under attack? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, welcoming back into the studio, Patrick Scahill, WMPR science and environment reporter, also host of The Beaker. Patrick, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. Now, recently you reported for Next about the arrival of a new bug that's going to be bothersome to a particular uh, species of trees in Connecticut. Tell us about that insect. Uh, Right. So uh, this insect is uh, the southern pine beetle. And um, it's uh, something that's kind of been, uh, in recent years, moving uh, up uh, the eastern coast, moving moving north. And we do uh, realize that southern is in its name. (laughs) So obviously it comes from uh, warmer areas. But uh, winters have been getting... Uh, over the last 50 years, um, a little bit warmer, and that's been helping this insect uh, move north. Uh, this insect, what has it done in the south? So um, it destroys uh, trees, is is the most simple way to put it, and it, in doing so, has cost uh, billions of dollars uh, in, in damage. So this is a an insect that um, can uh, essentially destroy uh, certain types of uh, hard pine trees, uh, burrows its way in there, essentially cuts off nutrient flow within the tree, the tree can die off, and that can cost uh, the forestry industry a lot of money. It has billions of dollars. Um, and uh, it can be a really devastating thing for, for certain communities. I understand the southern pine beetle was first discovered in Connecticut in, in 2015. Do scientists have any idea uh, how many are in the state now and what particular pines are at most risk? So I think we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But um, as of right now, uh, there aren't that many. So uh, we don't need to you know completely panic yet, nor, nor should we ever really be panicking about this thing. I mean, Well, that's a whole other (laughs) type of thing about how the media talks about insects. But um, uh, there are a few that are here. And we can talk a bit about sort of the interesting way that they we think they may have gotten in here uh, later in the segment. Well, also in studio with us is Dr. Claire Rutledge, entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Uh, Dr. Rutledge, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. So maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the population of the southern pine beetle and the, the types of trees that are most at risk that we, that we know of today. Sure, sure. Um, so in Connecticut, as of yet, um, we don't even really know if they've established here. Um, we do keep finding them. Um, at very, very low levels, but it's possible that they're just blowing over from Long Island. Um, In Long Island, they discovered the beetles in the fall of 2014. We found them in the spring of 2015, but they probably invaded both places at the same time. Um, And in Long Island, they're just that much enough warmer 
that they have really taken off. Also, Long Island has a substantial population of their favorite, one of their favorite host trees, the pitch pine. Mm. Um, they're very sandy. That's the type of soil that the pitch pine likes. And so they are currently in the midst of a huge outbreak, um, and they're actually losing thousands of acres of pitch pines. Um, so in Connecticut, uh, we did find evidence of widespread infestation from the summer of 2014, um, sort of throughout the state, but it was very sporadic. Um, but we found, you know, about 200 trees that had been attacked. Um, and, you know, probably about 50, 60 percent of those had died. Um, we found them attacking a number of different trees, uh, pitch pine, uh, white pine, Norway spruce, uh, red pine, Scots pine. Uh, so we found them in a number of trees. But um, since then, we have not found them in new trees, and we have found them in traps um, at very low levels um, in different parts of the state. And so we, we really don't know if those are beetles that are overwintering here and being successful at very, very low levels, or if they are continuing to blow over from Long Island. Mm. Now, you mentioned that 200 trees uh, have been discovered with that have been um, that these beetles have been boring into. Mm -hmm. uh, Patrick, when you were doing your reporting, you went out and uh, you were talking with a scientist about uh, the trees that were attacked by these uh, insects. And it, there's an unusual uh, something that shows up on the bark. Can you describe that for our listeners? Yeah. So um, it, there's kind of two words that pop to the front of my mind when I think about this. And it's uh, shotgun pellet holes and, and popcorn. And those are kind of two weird, weird things to put together. Um, but that's sort of what the tree looks like. It, it gets this um, uh, indentation pattern on the tree that kind of looks like it was hit with shotgun pellets. And then um, what the tree does when the beetle bores in, and Claire can talk more to this, I'm sure, is that it uh, essentially tries to pitch out the beetle by um, extraditing pitch. So it, it pushes out some pitch to try to push, push the beetle out of the tree. And that leaves little um, popcorn-style kernels that are like stuck all over the tree. So you see this tree that has a lot of tiny little holes and a lot of little popcorn pieces essentially put onto it. Yeah, it really does look like someone took popcorn and glued it to the yeah, tree. It looks it's, like some kind of grade school craft project. Or yeah. Something. <laughs> <laughs> and you do find beetles stuck in it. It is they are sometimes pretty successful at pitching out the beetle and and uh, why the beetle can be so successful when it reaches that epidemic outbreak proportions that it just overwhelms that tree's response. There's so many many beetles attacking that they can't pitch them all out. Yeah. Now, when you were looking at that study out of Columbia University published in Nature Climate Change, tell us about what some of the, uh, the results of that study and some of the predictions for, for the next uh, several years. Yeah. So this was a study that was um, essentially pairing up climate change modeling with, um, uh, and we're going to get into the weeds very, very quickly here, <laughs> uh, the cold tolerances of a beetle. So basically, how cold does winter have to get to kill off a uh, southern pine beetle? Um, and the cold limit for uh, the beetle, according to the paper, is about, uh, I think, 7 degrees to minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, if it gets that cold during the winter on the coldest night of the year, um, the beetle doesn't really survive. It can't overwinter. And then that's, I guess, good for pine trees, not so good for the beetle. So um, what Corey Lask uh, from Columbia was doing in this paper was basically map matching up uh, climate change data from uh, north, uh, northeast uh, parts of the U.S. and southern parts of Canada to say, like, hey, if winters keep getting warmer, how is that going to impact survival rates for beetles? And what he basically found out is that, well, winters are getting warmer, and that means that more beetles are going to be able to survive, and they're going to be able to move uh, more 
more up the up the coast, if that if that makes sense. <laughs> and so, um, with warming winters, um, bigger areas in northeast U.S., even southeast Canada. Yeah, exactly. So by uh, you know within a few years, I think we he was saying we might be seeing southern pine beetle uh, doing a bit better here in Connecticut. Uh, then by the mid uh, part of this century, we might see it really throughout all of New England and maybe by like 2080 or so, it might be in southern parts of Canada as well. This is where we live today. We're talking about invasive uh, insects that are threatening uh, specific trees in Connecticut and New England. In studio with me is WMPR science and environment reporter, host of The Beaker, Patrick Scahill, and Dr. Claire Rutledge, entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Now, a little bit later, we're going to talk about some other uh, insects that have been troublesome for particular trees in our state, uh, Dr. Rutledge. But in terms of this uh, new insect, this southern pine beetle that's made its way further north, um, for our listeners who pay attention uh, to this kind of thing and who love their trees, anything that they, if they notice something, a little citizen science, like how they should be responding? Should they be contacting the ag station or the state forester? Yeah, yeah. Either either get in touch with the state forester at DEP, and they'll get in touch with, with, with us, or, or you can contact us directly at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. If you see your uh, pine tree or your spruce tree, your Norway spruce, with those popcorns on them, we would love to hear about it um, to keep track of what's going on. And you mentioned that some of them have showed up in traps. So how are you mon- can you explain a little further how you're monitoring this sure. uh, southern pine beetle? Sure. Well, the southern pine beetle actually um, has a really, really um, elaborate pheromone system that they use to facilitate their attacks on trees. Um, their successful attack on healthy trees depends on a mass response. So they have this um, aggregation pheromone system. Uh, pioneer females, they're called, find a tree that's suitable, <laughs> and then they start sending out... Um, chemical signals to say, hey, this is a great tree, come on in. Um, and that combined with the, the uh, chemicals the tree starts to release in response to the beetles, the stress pheromones, uh, calls in lots and lots of beetles. They even have a pheromone that says stop. This is full. Um, so so they, they, they have this really complicated system. And um, since this has been such an important pest, um, we know all that system. It has been figured out. It has been uh, synthesized, those chemicals, so we can exploit those and use them to trap. So we set out uh, what are called Lindgren funnel traps. Uh, They're like a column of black funnels uh, that go down into a killing agent, something like alcohol or propylene glycol. And um, we put those pheromones on the trap and we catch the beetles and they're very very sensitive. So we've set those traps up um, for three years now. somewhere between five and seven sites around the state, depending on on where we're going. This year, we brought in some citizen scientists who checked traps for us at uh, Groton Open Space in Oscawatchee Hills um, in in Lyme, uh, East Lyme, Connecticut. So, uh, and then we go every week, we pull the beetles out, and then we check through all the tiny little bark beetles and see if we can find southern pine beetles. And... um, we kind of come up with a grand total, let's say, 10 the first year, 17 the second year. I think we got six this year. So, so very low numbers, considering it takes 2,000 of them to attack a tree. Um, so how worried, worried are you about the, the emergence of this particular insect in our region? Um, I think the big concern for us is that white pine is not a very good host for it. They, they can get through on white pine, but um, and that's our dominant pine species. So for us, the big concern is pitch pine. Um, 
the other concern is if it continues to go north is red pine. And we don't have red pine in a lot of the state, but we do have it up in, in the northwestern, in the hills, in Litchfield. And as you continue to go north, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem. So that, that is a real concern, and that starts to become an economic concern. But ecologically, pitch pine is um, a limited habitat. It used to be very widespread, um, and a colonial nickname for it was candlewood. And we have a lot yeah. of candlewood p- place names, and it was widely used as as candlewood. Um, but its habitat needs to be it needs to have fire to maintain it, and it also grows on places that are really good to put houses on. So we actually have a very limited pitch pine, and there's about seven different species that are on the threatened or endangered list for the state of Connecticut that use pitch pine as their habitat. Um, so you know some beetles, some species of beetles, a couple of birds. So that for Connecticut, since it is already such a small habitat due to habitat degradation, um, the remaining ones, when, I'm not going to say if, when southern pine beetle takes off, uh, could potentially be wiped out in, in you know, one or two years. So that that's the major concern. And in your reporting, Patrick, the, the pitch pine, that is an endangered tree? Well, and it's also a very, it's a very Connecticut tree, right? I mean, Claire, Claire was saying this, uh, this is a tree uh, that was uh, used in uh, the process of making candles. We have uh, candlewood uh, forest here in Connecticut. Um, uh, a state forester was actually telling me that uh, pitch pine, actually, you could take the pitch from these trees and pay it in lieu of taxes back during the Revolutionary <laughs> War time. Because yeah. uh, this, I mean, it was it was everywhere. And now, as, as uh, Claire is saying, we don't have it really anymore. And the fact that it is an ideal host uh, for this insect is, is very concerning because we will lose this iconic Connecticut tree. Uh, you were, again, talking about the study uh, about warming uh, winters and how that can um, increase the population of the southern pine beetle and as it moves uh, further north. Any other factors that could impact the expansion of this insect? So um, like many things in science, uh, the answer is yes, but we're not really sure how it'll play out. So, I mean, you could, I think, definitely argue uh, fire, drought might have an impact on southern pine beetle, but these are areas that are not terribly well studied, is my understanding, right, Claire? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, the way the, the population dynamic tends to work is that if you have a tree that's vulnerable, that can be where they get a foothold to build up the populations that then are big enough to take over healthy trees. So the more uh, stressed out a tree population gets, um, the more possibility that there is susceptible trees that can serve as those nursery trees for the epidemic. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is WNPR science and environment reporter Patrick Scahill. Also, Dr. Claire Rutledge, entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. We're talking about uh, the southern pine beetle, a new beetle that's been found in the Northeast and can threaten pine forests in Connecticut and the rest of New England. We'll tweet out a link to Patrick's story at where we live. Now, after the break, we'll learn more about other pests and diseases threatening local trees. Do you remember the majestic elms that line the streets where you grew up? What about other trees like the American chestnut? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. (music) 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just learned about the southern pine beetle, which threatens pine forests in New England. In studio with me is Patrick Scahill, WMPR science and environment reporter and host of thebeaker.org. Also, Dr. Claire Rutledge, entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. And joining us now is Chris Martin, Connecticut State Forester. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. We were talking about the southern pine beetle and uh, the pitch pine, uh, which there aren't very many left, as we've heard um, from both Patrick and Claire. Um, with, when we talk about uh, other pines in the state, including uh, white oak, can you kind of give us a breakdown of the, the trees, the pines that are most uh, populous in the state? Oh, sure. So uh, most populous is definitely the white pine tree, um, iconic uh, tree of Connecticut, often used for ship masts, and Mystic Seaport is very fond of these wonderful pine trees that we grow. Uh, second up, most likely, would be um, we have some remnant uh, red pine and uh, pitch pine, and also a lot of, um, uh, I guess, exotic pines that are planted for landscape purposes. Now, we were talking again about this particular insect, but uh, we know that pine trees are not the first species of trees to be threatened in this region. Can you walk us through some of the, the cases of what happened to the majestic American chestnuts and the elm uh, trees that we used to see a lot of in New Haven? Yeah, so uh, new uh, devastating insects and diseases aren't... Um, anything Connecticut hasn't experienced before, and we can go back uh, to the early 1900s. Um, in fact, one one iconic one is gypsy moth, uh, first introduced in the state in 1905, and uh, we still deal with that today, followed up by the chestnut blight, which um, we believe actually started, uh, was found initially in Bronx Zoo area of New York City in 1904, found in Connecticut in 1905. Um, at the time, uh, Connecticut's forests were dominant by chestnut, made about 25% of all trees in the state were or chestnut, and what a favorite tree that was. It was strong, straight, used for building materials, and the mast was a food staple for many, uh, for for us and for uh, a lot of the wildlife habitat, too. I've never seen yeah. an American chestnut. Can you describe it for us, how, so, how tall they were? And yeah, the... so if um, you're familiar with uh, yellow poplar or tulip tree, uh, big gun barrel trees, 24, 36 inches in diameter that go up 40, 50 feet without a branch. Uh, that tree is very soft, though, soft wood. So the equivalent would be the chestnut, very similar shape and size, however, has the hardness of an oak and the resistance to rot um, as a cedar. So it's really a wonderful tree to have. Many of the old buildings, uh, chestnut or factory, factories or barns, were built with chestnut beams. And so the blight wiped the American chestnut out, but there have been some hybrids that have been introduced. Can you talk us through that? There has. There's been a national effort. Um, in fact, the Ag Station in New Haven has led much of that, along with the American Ch uh, Chestnut Foundation, in hybridizing um, remnant um, chestnuts that showed some resistance to, to the disease with Japanese chestnuts, or Chinese chestnuts, rather. And over time, through many um, generations of progeny, they've kind of recreated, so to speak, the characteristics, the iconic characteristics of the American chestnut. And there are some outplantings occurring now. Fingers are crossed that uh, they survive and do well. You mentioned, or I mentioned, uh, the elm trees. I understand in New Haven, uh, the hurricane of 38, when it swept through the state, we saw a lot of these elms fall. But there was also the Dutch elm disease. So tell us what happened with the elms. So, yeah, the elm trees were a favorite tree for um, our urban landscapes. Uh, they're, they're just, um, a, you know, long stem, kind of like an upside-down vase. The shaded uh, characteristics for our street trees were just so important back in the early 1900s. In 1933, um, Dutch elm disease was discovered in Connecticut. 
and soon uh, wiped out all the elm trees. Um, so fungus basically uh, came from Europe. And the uh, kind of irony of the story with Dutch elm is many of the replacement trees were white ash because white ash has very similar growth characteristics to the Dutch elm, I mean to the American elm, affected by the Dutch elm disease. The, uh, the long stem with the flowering out uh, top really helped with the uh, shading and um, beautification of downtown areas. So replaced the dead elms with ash, and now today we have issues with ash. And so, you know, always good to diversify your street tree plantings in case who else may knows will come down the road. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the ash tree. With us in studio, Dr. Claire Rutledge, entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Tell us about what's plaguing the ash trees in the Northeast, Claire. Okay. Well, the, the major thing plaguing them is a beetle called the emerald ash borer. It's from, from northeastern Asia, from China, Korea, um, and it is a borer. It's, it feeds on the phloem and cambium, so that living layer of tissue between the bark and the wood on the trunk of a tree. And um, when you get enough of them, they can girdle and kill the tree in pretty fast order, usually you know, about two years, two, three years. Um, it started out in Detroit. It was first found in Detroit. Detroit has a very high ash tree population or had a very high ash tree population. Um, and they think it actually got there about 1990. It was discovered in 2002, and it has swiftly spread around the country um, on its own, but mostly helped by people. So if you remember nothing else from this show, don't move firewood. Buy local, burn local. Um, that's how it's moved around the country. It's now found in, uh, oh, I've lost track, 21 states, 22 states, uh, everywhere from uh, Texas to Colorado to Connecticut. Um, and, and where it has been, it kills about 99% of the ash trees. Uh, we discovered it in Connecticut in 2012. And originally in north northern uh, New Haven County in Prospect, up in Prospect, Waterbury, Naugatuck, that region. And it has since spread to all eight counties. And uh, we're beginning to see some pretty heavy ash mortality in those regions where we first, first found it. Chris, how many ash trees do you estimate are, are still around now? Well, um, so the numbers are decreasing, but uh, the ash component represents about 10 to 15 percent of all trees in Connecticut. Now, it does vary depending on where you are in the state, mm -hmm. and uh, some of those concentrations can be higher. In other areas, the ash isn't quite so prominent. But safe to say, um, it's the number of trees are in the tens of thousands of trees. And I'll add that oftentimes ash likes to grow um, where there's been previous disturbance. And so you have road cuts, um, construction areas, schoolyards, that kind of thing. In the woods, you oftentimes find ash. And this is where you know, the conversation about public safety and, mm -hmm. and impacts to municipal budgets and the proactive stance they need to take to manage their ash resource really comes to the forefront. Patrick? Uh, Chris, as you were talking um, and going through kind of the depressing litany of uh, blights and insects <laughs> that have arrived during the 20th century here in Connecticut and, and in the U.S., um, it got me thinking about, okay, so what's facilitating this, right? And I think one obvious answer is uh, we're in a more in interconnected world. We're traveling more. Um, ports are more active. There's more boats coming in. There's more planes coming in. And all this stuff is moving around. Um, but I also wonder if it has something to do with how we're using our forests. Um, so I don't know if you can just kind of talk, and Claire as well, just what's facilitating all this? <laughs> well, certainly um, we are somewhat of a victim of our global trade. And 
uh, the use of our forests, and, and it goes the other way around too. We need to be careful what we ship out of our country to other countries. And so as we move forward, um, you know, the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service definitely has stepped up their efforts in inspecting those ports. And we find this in wood packing material and pallets and whatnot. Um, for us, what we can do here is when we're shipping materials out of the country, we need to make sure that we treat that wood that's used for packing first. And this can be either through methyl bromide or through a heat treatment process that basically, um, through kiln drying, kills anything that might be living inside the wood. These wood borers are the ones that are most likely to be moving around. Um, as we use our forests, though, you know, as Claire said, you know, um, buying local, burn local, or even manufacture local, if you're not kiln drying, that native lumber really needs to stay close to home in order to avoid transporting something inadvertently to another location. And that could go for native pests also. You mentioned uh, the way that things are packed and shipped. Uh, plastic, obviously, not good for the environment, but could that be something that could alleviate some of that? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> so my, 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 you ask a forester that question. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, this is a manageable issue. Um, th- it's not complex, uh, and we're not going to, you know, I would be against, you know, drawing more petroleum out of the earth that's a non-renewable resource to substitute for wood, which is a renewable resource when used wisely. That's, so we were talking about uh, the the elms that have been wiped out, the American chestnut, but there's hybrid versions that are um, that are uh, being worked on, and we're seeing some people have them uh, planted uh, where they live. Uh, you mentioned the ash had, had uh, grown where uh, some of the elm is no longer. What about oak trees? Is that now something that we see a lot of, and what's plaguing the oak? Pardon the pun, but let's knock on wood that there's nothing, <laughs> nothing really on the verge of attacking our oak trees, which yeah. are, you know, kind of really, I mean, the state tree is a white oak, right? Oh, Quercus yeah. alba. So, um, so far, so good. I mean, gypsy moth, yes. Gypsy moth is an issue. But this kind of goes to the a conversation of, you know, when we reach balance or equilibrium with these new invasive pests. And some would say that gypsy moth has kind of met its match with a mamega fungus that occurred this past summer late spring, after we had abundant rainfall that activated that fungus that's naturally occurring in the soil and put those gypsy moth caterpillars in check. And we had a massive die-off across the state all at once over one weekend. And this is where you know, we're hoping that may happen with emerald ash borer, where there's a natural balance that eventually occurs, and with other forest pests. So the story remains um, oak. Uh, we do see some mortality from combination of drought and repeated gypsy moth defoliation, especially in eastern Connecticut. But uh, gypsy moth has been here for well over 100 years, and we still have a lot of oak trees in the state. Uh, the entomologist from Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station is here, Dr. Claire Rutledge. Uh, we, we were talking about the oak tree. Uh, any problematic uh, insects that um, you know about that could pose a threat? Well, there, there is a, an insect called the winter moth, which has been causing a lot of problem in, in Massachusetts. Um, in, it has been found in eastern Connecticut, uh, basically south of I-91. Uh, this last couple of years, if you've seen the de- um, defoliation in Stonington, Groton, you know, far eastern, southeastern Connecticut, uh, south of 91, it's been mostly winter moth. North, it was, it was gypsy moth. Um, However, there is a biological control program in, in process for that, so we're hoping, we're hoping that might not become too big of an issue. Uh, there's also oak wilt, which has been found in, in Long Island, uh, very isolated. We're hoping it, it doesn't get here. So there, there are things on the horizon that might be an issue for oak, but 
so far, so good. <laughs> We're talking about invest, invasive uh, pests and also diseases that are harming uh, the trees uh, in New England. Uh, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We have a caller uh, come from New Haven. Jim's calling. Jim, what's your question? Yes. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Maltby Lakes uh, open space area in uh, New Haven, West Haven, uh, but they just recently clear-cut a uh, massive number of pine trees. Um, and when I asked them about it, they said it was to combat the eastern pine beetle. And uh, so I have two questions. One, is this different from the southern pine beetle that you were talking about? And then also, is clear-cutting the only solution, as they claimed? Thank you, Jim, for your questions. Uh, Dr. Rutledge. Hi, Jim. Um, yeah, I'm familiar with Maltby Lakes. Uh, there's two things going on. One is uh, I think they must have misspoken because that was indeed the southern pine beetle that was found there. Um, and the other was that um, they were concerned. We didn't know whether or not it would overwinter, so clear cutting was one way to do it. Um, the other thing was that they had a really big overpopulation of those pine trees, and they were really concerned about them as a hazard tree. Um, in 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 high winds, you know, Hurricane Sandy had happened not that long ago. Uh, so I think it was sort of a management decision that they looked at it and said, here's the population we have that's vulnerable. We don't know if it's going to be taken out and is causing a pu public health risk. So um, I don't know that, that that was the only solution, but I think for them they saw that as, as an opportunity to manage a, a situation that they were concerned about in any case. Chris Martins, Connecticut State Forester, to uh, Jim's question about is clear-cutting the only solution, can you walk us through the decisions that are made when, when certain areas are found to have a particular problematic insect? Yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, clear-cutting uh, heavily infested trees is a uh, proactive means to stopping the beetle in its track. Um, we've also taken some proactive steps in some of our natural area preserves, uh, Wharton Brook, for instance, where um, our foresters inventoried the woods, uh, found that there was too many trees per acre. The trees themselves can stress themselves out by being too close together. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to perpetuate the pitch pine forest in that area. So we selectively thinned uh, some of those trees and some removed some of the hardwood trees to actually promote regeneration of pitch pine. And it sounds counterintuitive, but we hope to follow that up with burning the forest or at least the forest floor to activate uh, the pine cones that fall that are serotonous, that actually open up when they're heated to release those seeds. So there are things that we can do. Um, our friends to New Jersey and to our south are very active in, in promoting healthy forests because uh, a healthy tree can oftentimes ward off a minor outbreak of southern pine beetle. We heard Dr. Rutledge mention that you don't want to be transporting uh, firewood from different states and there have been bans. How do people follow that and where's the teeth uh, to enforce something like that, Chris? So it is definitely uh, more on the volunteer best management uh, component. Uh, we, we don't want to become tree police and um, I know our current law enforcement folks are busy enough. But um, the public awareness that uh, m most New England states have taken, and certainly Connecticut has had, had leadership in this um, with the Ag Station uh, promulgating regulations regarding firewood transportation, uh, we think the public gets it. You know, it's, it's kind of like the recycling seatbelt thing. You know, you know it's the right thing to do. There's risk involved. It's better for the environment if you recycle. And so it's not a big ask to ask people to not bring their firewood to them from Connecticut up to their camp up north or vice versa. And... Um, 
and there's plenty of wood everywhere to be, be bought. And so why why put all that extra weight in your vehicle to begin with? It really doesn't make economic sense, and um, it's much better for the forest to keep it local. So we did an actual firewood check at Hammonasset State Park last summer, and uh, it was really rewarding, actually, the awareness that the public had. And when asked, they said, oh, I wouldn't do that. I don't want to be the vector for uh, bringing something bad from my place to a new place. So I think people get it overall. Mm-hmm. We were talking about uh, the emerald ash borer. So what are some steps the state's taking to combat this insect, Dr. Relich? Um so at this point, it's uh, the cat's out of the bag. It's spreading. There's not much we can do in terms of, of, of stopping it. We can slow it down by, by stopping people, you know, from people trying not to bring infested wood from one place to another. Um, at this point, mostly we're working on trying to help um, municipalities cope with it because of the public health risk. Uh, you get these hazard trees. The ash tree disintegrates pretty quickly after it's killed, So, and they are along roadsides. So DOT's taking down a lot of trees along roads. Uh, power companies are taking down a lot of trees along wires, um, and municipalities have to take down a lot of trees. So that's that's something that we're working uh, to try to help, help with that. Um, we're also doing um, a biological control program in co- coordination with uh, USDA APHIS. So we've been releasing these tiny little parasitic wasps from the home country of, of emerald ash borer that only attack emerald ash borer, and we've been releasing those in the state since 2013. Um, and we're hoping uh, they aren't going to save this generation of trees, but we're hoping that they might create the ecological space for the next generation of ash trees to regrow and create that balance Chris was talking about. You mentioned the parasitic wasps. Is this something that the federal government is watching to see what the outcome is? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is definitely a federal program. Um, They have built a um, specialized insectary out in Michigan where they crank out you know, thousands of these wasps. It's a it's an incredible program, um, and and scientists all over the country are working, including us, on monitoring um, how this is going to turn out. But it's a it's a long term project. It's going to be taking you know fifteen twenty years before we find out if it really worked. We haven't talked about the Asian longhorn beetle, uh, Patrick. I think you've done some reporting on the Asian longhorn beetle. Yeah, actually, can I just ask one question? Yeah. Quick. So the fifth grader in me is wondering. <laughs> so parasitic wasp sounds kind of scary. Can you just talk about what, what it act, what the parasitic wasp actually does? It is really scary if you're the host of the parasitic wasp, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what they do, uh, they tend to have very, very specialized um, host uh, parasite relationships. So they only attack their their host. Um, but the female wasp uh, is a tiny little wasp. She flies around, sips nectar, but she lays her egg inside the body of her host. And then when the wasp babies hatch, they eat that host from the inside out. The host is alive for a while, but then eventually is killed. So, yeah, it's pretty okay, gruesome. <laughs> So back to the Asian longhorn beetle. Um, yeah, so I might actually def- de- defer on that because this isn't something that I'm totally familiar with, and we have two great experts here, so I'm, I'm going to kind of pass on that. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I'm grateful that I don't have personal experience with yes. Asian longhorn beetle <laughs> in-state just yet, um, but we have seen, and Claire also have seen the devastation in Worcester, Mass., which is our closest infestation. Uh, we should note there's also some uh, in Onlongan Sound, uh, but the Worcester, Mass. story is one that um, really drives home the fact that uh, we need to become more aware of our surroundings ar- about us because in Worcester, this beetle was present 10 to 15 years. It's a charismatic beetle. It's big. It's black, shiny, white, has blue feet. And for a beetle like that to be crawling around Worcester for that many years with no one asking, wow, 
what is this? It's really, it's really troublesome. So as we try to promote, you know, getting kids outdoors and addressing this nature deficit disorder syndrome, you know, it's a telltale sign of why we need to be engaged in our outdoors and, and be curious about what we see. The 2008 discovery in Worcester um, has, has spread to 110 square miles of quarantine. That's one of the reasons why we thought it's so important to have our firewood regulations because it's just 12 miles north of us to northeastern Connecticut. So we really don't want that beetle coming into state. And the appetite for Asian longhorn beetle is broad. Um, many, many hard, hardwood trees are when it's with its uh, tasty appetite. So it could be devastating to our hardwood industry, to our hardwood forest, to our fall foliage if this thing really got a foothold. I was curious also, you know, we, we talk a lot about a lot of things here on the show, and oftentimes it goes back to uh, budgetary concerns. And so when you see uh, cities and towns and even the state having to uh, cut back on their forestry uh, maintenance programs, I mean, how does that impact uh, the, long, the, the bigger question of, of how to prevent like, certain species being wiped out and uh, relying on people monitoring um, volunteers in the community? Well, so for every Asian longhorn beetle outbreak that's been in the United States discovered, it wasn't the forester or the arborist or the expert that discovered it. It was average Joe citizen or a resident that was had curiosity about what this was and brought it to the professional's attention. So this is where, and it's, I wouldn't even say it's citizen science. We just need everyone to be aware of what is lurking about in their backyards and woods and be curious and ask questions or you know, go on the internet. I mean, the, the sources of information are, are no more than a keystroke away on finding out what you're looking at and then letting someone know if you have a concern. Mm. But if trees are um, being damaged and they pose a, a public safety risk, it's the, the local foresters that are out there checking these trees, making sure they don't fall on, on cars, on people? So yeah, the financial impacts can be staggering. And um, we've had towns in Connecticut that have actually rolled over their snow removal budget into tree removal in the spring yeah. and summer just to help manage that. Um, we've brought in speakers from other states that have shown how to manage the cash flow of uh, tree removal by actually uh, saving some of the trees temporarily or keeping them living a little bit longer through a, a low-cost treatment. And then while removing others, you can stage basically your, your planned removal. And so your, the impact to the, to the town budget is much less. Um, unfortunately, there is no state assistance directly for this. We do have um, some grant programs for replanting but not so much for uh, you know, wiping out emerald ash borer. Yeah. We're getting a tweet from Sarah who writes, cities like Hartford are tackling emerald ash borer canopy resilience in their climate action plan. Also, the City Tree Commission has built a coalition to raise awareness and advocate for treatment. Uh, so that is interesting um, coming from Hartford. Dr. Rutledge, did you want to add something before we take a quick call? Uh, Mike's calling from Waterbury. Mike, you're on the show. Okay, thanks for taking my call. My question is, if we can expect significant mortality with white ash and pitch pine and other species, uh, do we have other species waiting in the wings to fulfill that ecological niche? And what can we look for in the future as the composition of Connecticut's forests change over time? Thank you, Mike, for your questions. So I guess I would start with that. In Connecticut, our one um, ace in the hole is that we have some of the most diverse forests in the nation. You know, our... Our situation here is a confluence of northern hardwoods mm -hmm. and the Appalachian hardwoods. And so as far as tree species go, we are very, very diverse, very dynamic. Um, what we don't want to lose is some of the mass-producing trees, like the hickories. And if we lose 
a lot of oaks temporarily the gypsy moth you know we lose some we lose that mass production that's important for wildlife hickories can take some of the place we've already lost a lot of chestnut obviously so the oaks have kind of replaced that um, as far as the pitch pines go it would be hard to lose all those pitch pines and I think you know as mentioned earlier the jury's still out whether or not that will actually occur uh, pitch pines are a unique ecosystem in Connecticut um, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna take the optimistic view and say they'll be around for a long time uh, Pat's calling from New Haven. Pat, we have under a minute. Go ahead with your question. Can you please talk about what this uh, tar-like substance is that has appeared on maple leaves, and is there anything that can reverse that condition? Thank you. I'll take the answer up the air. Hi, Pat. Um, that's called tar spot, and it's a really, really common thing, um, and it's of no concern, really, because the, the leaf has already pretty much done its photosynthesis, and it will not greatly impact the tree. So, um, and it occurs every year. Once you start seeing it, you're going to see it everywhere. Now, Dr. Rutledge, earlier you talked about uh, with uh, the southern pine beetle and the impact on the pitch pine, uh, certain uh, insects and animals uh, that rely on the the pitch pine. What are some of the longer ecological impacts of if you see a lot of these trees coming down, uh, a certain bird uh, that may uh, like a certain tree or a certain insect that uses it, but it's not as detrimental as some of these be- some of these beetles. Yeah, well, I mean, every tree has has its own specialists that that feed on it. Um, and with the pitch pine, it's it's part of this whole ecosystem, this sort of open forest scrub um, ecosystem that that is this scrub oak and and pitch pine and sandy soil. So you have. Um, there's a tiger beetle that is in there. There's um, some butterflies that are in there. And it's it's more about the the whole habitat. But also trees all have their own things. There's over 100 native species of insects that use ash trees only mm-hmm. and will be um, – you know, severely limited in their populations, including things like some of the big hornworms, you know, some of the big silk moths. So, Well, we appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, we've run out of time, but I want to thank Dr. Claire Rutledge, entomologist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. Uh, nice to, that, to see you, and thank you for joining us today, oh, Dr. Well, Rutledge. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Also, Chris Martin, Connecticut State Forester. Chris, thank you for your time. Appreciate the opportunity. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, WNPR science reporter Patrick Scahill. Patrick Scahill will stay with us as we explore how invasive plants are changing our local ecosystem. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. From kudzu to Japanese barberry, invasive plants spread easily, choking out beneficial native plants. How are invasives changing our forests and backyards in the Northeast? To tell us more, we're joined now by phone Dr. Jason Fridley, plant ecologist and associate professor of biology at Syracuse University. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Tell us about your work that you're doing with invasive plants and what should we be looking out for? We study the um, kind of ecological effects, but also the global context of plant invasions in northeastern forests. And in particular, we're very interested in this very directional pattern of exchange from East Asian forests into North American forests. So it turns out that the plants that we have that are becoming more common in our landscapes, whether it's Japanese barberry or burning bush or Japanese honeysuckle, they're all from, or mostly from the same spot in the world. And so that happens to be China and Korea and Japan. 
uh, a region of very diverse forests and also a very interesting evolutionary history of that flora. And so we're trying to figure out whether or not the history of those plants, and I'm talking about deep time history here, millions of years, whether that actually relates to why they're so invasive in our northeastern forests. So um, earlier we were talking about uh, invasive pests in the Northeast coming from, uh, you know, on shipping uh, cargo. Uh, I'm just curious when we're talking about invasive plants, how did they get here? There's kind of two groups if you think about Northeastern plants. There's a group that's been here since European colonialism 400 years ago, and that tends to be the plants of our uh, our lawns and our pastures and kind of associated with human habitation. Um, mostly they're herbaceous things, um, but there's a couple of woodies in there, things like box or uh, common buckthorn is very common. But there's another group that was introduced much later, almost exclusively for ornamental purposes, after Japan in particular opened up into the West in the late 19th century. And these are things that something I mentioned before, a lot of which can't even be sold in Connecticut anymore, things like multiflora rose or autumn olive or a whole variety of honeysuckles or oriental bittersweet. All those things were introduced largely for ornamental purposes and became invasive right away and actually are some of our worst problems in, in natural areas. So it's, it's kind of a, the story of, of two types of introductions, and today it's the intentionally introduced things that are actually more problematic. Now, um, in studio with us is our science reporter, Patrick Scahill. You've done some reporting on Japanese barberry. Tell us about that plant and why it's problematic. Yeah, so uh, Japanese barberry was a, a landscape plant, um, actually, that was uh, introduced uh, into Connecticut, I think, around the late 1800s. Um, uh, and this is a plant that grows about waist high normally, usually has sort of oblong red fruits on it. And uh, what it can do is um, really take over forest uh, floors, honestly, and create these very, very humid climates that can be very... Um, good for things like deer ticks. Um, and uh, we did a story here recently at WNPR uh, speaking with a scientist who uh, over the past 10 years has actually looked at Japanese barberry uh, and its influence on deer tick populations in the state um, and uh, using 10 years of data where he basically looked at uh, areas that had Japanese barberry, areas that did not have Japanese barberry, and areas that had uh, Japanese barberry where it was managed. Um, he found that if you manage it, you get fewer deer ticks. Um, so uh, just in the context of this being a year where we've had a, a lot, a lot of ticks in Connecticut, um, that was an interesting paper that just came out uh, that had to do directly with an invasive plant. Um, uh, Dr. Fridley, you were telling us that many of the invasives we're seeing here in the Northeast are coming from Asia, but that pattern doesn't seem to happen as frequently in reverse. So what are you finding in your research about well, why? It's, yeah, it's... Um so one of the things we're pinpointing is the influence of the climate histories of those regions. So uh, many of your listeners may not be familiar with a very different e ecological history that eastern North America had, particularly in the last, um, the, during the ice ages, the last two million years, and even an era we call the Pliocene a couple million years before that has been this cooling and uh, a drying event that happened in North America that happened to a much greater extent than in Europe, um, and particularly in East Asia. And a result of that is that East Asia has retained over a very long period a kind of closed forest kind of conditions in which you might expect very shade-tolerant, you know, good forest plants to evolve. And there's a lot of good evidence that suggests that really never happened here in eastern North America. We maintained kind of a more meadow, park-like landscape for long periods, and it's possible that that's one of the reasons why the meadow plants that we are so familiar with, things like ragweed or sunflowers or goldenrods, 
are actually quite invasive in East Asia, which historically was forests and now has a more open landscape because of humans, whereas the reverse, the forest plants that have evolved so nicely in East Asia are now the ones that are invasive in our forested natural areas here in North America. I looked up uh, Connecticut invasive plant list uh, before the show, and there's just too many to name. Uh, but, but before we end the show, Dr. Fridley, um, what are some ways that uh, humans can do a better job at keeping these plants from further propagating? It's tough. There's a, a long list of things that are already um, not legal to, to move or grow in Connecticut, and those are some of our biggest problems. But I'm in my perspective is that this is just the tip of the iceberg <clears throat> and that a lot of things that are you only find in botanical gardens right now, if they were to become more widely used in landscapes, would also become invasive, many of these similar lineages from East Asia. So um, it's difficult. You want to, on the one hand, encourage diverse landscape plantings, uh, in part for wildlife, but also, it's many of these things uh, will become actually more abundant in the future, and will probably have some similar effects, um, like Patrick was saying about uh, effects on wildlife and tick abundances and whatnot. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we should work on planting more native uh, flowers uh, in our gardens. Absolutely. So, diverse plantings of all kinds um, are the way to go. Well, I want to thank Dr. Jason Fridley, plant ecologist and associate professor of biology at Syracuse University. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Happy to be here. Also in studio with us for the hour, Patrick Scahill, WNPR science and environment reporter. And if you haven't checked out his blog, you're missing out, host of The Beaker. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your expertise as well. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to WNPR intern Sarah Bly. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Check out more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>